0: You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome, one and all, to episode 249 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, and we are discussing Warhammer and Wargaming and nerd stuff all the way around. What are we discussing tonight? Well, we have an email from one of our Patreon patrons, Leroy Jenkins, and he mentions His experience with 10th edition so far. Then we have a want that or want that not for the new data cards, the index cards for 40k 10th edition. And then, oh, you thought we were over. We're not over. Then we have the 100% true explanation of how GW came to power and the whole backstory behind the development of that. And I assure you it is 100% accurate. Of course, we're brought to you today by our beautiful Sexy and Patreon patrons, we appreciate their support ever so much, as well as gamemat.eu for pre-painted resin terrain, neoprene mats, STL files, and you can get uh, 10% off the event 10 off your order. Then, of course, there's the beautiful, fantastic, always awesome panhandle3d.etsy.com, and they have a code for you, 15% off. It's PH3D15OFF for 15% off your order. They also do free shipping, I think, over 80 or over 100 bucks. So go ahead and check them out. What have I been up to? Well, working on settlement mode, uh, we've changed up some stuff at work in my real life, in my IRL job, and uh, it's given me a lot more freedom, a lot less stress. Overall, this is probably the best summer I've had in my entire career of 15, 16 years. Probably 16 years, I think. So its it's been the best summer ever. And um, I'm super excited about that. I've got way more time with my family. I've got uh, way more time with... Um, working on brutality or literally whatever I want to do. So I've been working a lot on the brutal uh, brutality settlement mode and uh, it's currently about 60 pages. It'll probably be closer to 100 when it's uh, when it's all done, but it's about 60 pages now. I'm really loving it. I'm running a campaign with my kids and uh, we are play testing the settlement mode as we go. So we've played three games and um, the the third game that we recently played, we had our first settlement attack. And we, you know, of course, uh, fended them off. It was a war band of orcs from Age of Sigmar. And the result of us winning was that the leader of that war band became a rival boss. So I'm excited about that. He's going to become a recurring character now that pops up time and again. And every time he pops up, he's going to become even more powerful. So it's it's pretty cool. We've got a rival now. Uh, the children are pretty funny, though. We only had one settlement attack so far and they immediately like, all right, we're going to stop building houses in our home phase. We're going to build a turret. (laughs) So they built a gun turret and uh, that's pretty cool. So there's a hill on the northeast uh, quarter of our town and our town is called Tin Cup. I don't know why, but it is. And um, we have a, a Lehman Russ turret and cannon on that hill. So now, um, as far as that goes, any more settlement attacks or missions that happen in the settlement, we can put someone within an inch of it and they can activate it and they can shoot at enemies as if they had ranged attacks, which is pretty cool. So you see, this kind of builds a narrative as you're going, essentially, Uh, like all the stuff I try to do for brutality. What else have I been up to? Well, I've decided to sell off all the Sauruses out of my my Lizardmen army, and I'm just keeping the skinks. I got 20 chameleon skinks that just came in. I got six Terra Wings, which are the little guys. I'm going to have uh, 12 Ripper Dactyls that are coming in, and I'm just going to do all Skinks all the time. I really like Skinks, and they seem like they will be a lot of fun to play. I also came up with a new paint scheme that I really like. Um, originally, my Skinks and all my Lizardmen were basically painted that generic light blue, like with the red he- head frill, which was the iconic Lizardmen look. And I decided, you know what? I want to do something different. So I I pl- tested one model painted him all black and I made the scales on his back a pale orange and then the center row even brighter orange and something I personally discovered with the uh, painting is that if you want a super bright orange just as a highlight you can use kids love flesh because it's a skin tone but when you put it on top of orange as a real pale highlight like to make it almost bright white It works because, you know, skin tone is kind of in the even though it's a peach, it's like in the orange family. And that worked out really well. And then I gloss it black and the whole thing looks nice and glossy. He's black with uh, orange scales going down his back and it's pretty easy to paint and it looks really good. So that's my new paint scheme. In the meantime, in the hobby corner, I have been working on my uh, all Trogoth army. So I have probably better than 50 percent of it all painted. Probably. Um, so I'm excited about that. Finally getting that on the table. And I'm also starting a cruel boys army. Okay, shut up. Quit, quit judging me. I'm also starting a cruel boys army and I started doing the paint scheme for that today. And, uh, they're going to be real pale skinned. I'm using Banshee something from army painter. It's, it's very similar to Rackarth flesh flesh. It might be slightly yellower than that, but, uh, that's basically the color of it. And I'm trying to figure out exactly what I want to do like for the metal and everything because if their skin color is real pale, then I have to make all the clothes black or dark brown or dark green so that it doesn't look weird. So that's what I'm dealing with right now, trying to figure out exactly what color I want to do it. But um, it's been very fun coming up with all these paint schemes and figuring out how to easily do it and all of that. And, you know, like the quickest paint scheme I possibly can. Now, I also want to remind you That's something I've learned over the years is that if you're using a paint scheme and you like it and you decide that you're going to stop painting and move away, what I make a habit of every single time now is writing on the bottom of a large base of one of my models exactly the paints I was using for it. And that way I can look back later on and use those exact paints again. So I would suggest you do that or keep a notebook or something like that. And really, that's about it. I've been playtesting my brutality. animal catching and training skirmish game and i've been um acquiring art for that and all that so that may be my next brutal space type expansion for brutality and i'm not sure but i think that's pretty much it um that's what i've been up to so i guess i will let you guys go let's get on with the rest of the show let's open the tesseract mailbox Now, of course, it's time for real talk with the Pimpcron and today we have an email from Leroy Jenkins at PimpCron at He writes, Hey P, insert meme here. I just had my first game of 10th edition 2. I played into Necrons. I played into Necrons. I think he means I played Necrons? Reanimation is insane. 20 warriors or 10 Lichguard can get a 4 up invulnerable save, I guess it'd be 4 plus plus. 4-pin vulnerable save, or a 5-up fill no pain from a character. Then there's a way, I think some barge thing, to let them use reanimation every phase that they lose a model. And then a strat to reanimate again in my shooting phase. Each time it is 2d3 plus 3 models, something like that from a reanimator plus being on an objective. That's in addition to your command phase. Necrons are strong. Luckily, I was playing imperial knights he he put ik imperial knights who are even more busted i was able to table the necrons by turn four while only losing one armager i 100 percent agree 10th is a huge improvement for casuals the game is simplified and the missions look very fun and random competitive play is a complete bumble at the moment love leroy jenkins um leroy i am aware of the five up feel no pain from the technomancer i'm aware of that the four up involve I was not aware of them. I have to look into how they got that. And of course, the um, reanimator I've not looked into yet. I have played three games of 10th edition and they were all with Necrons, but they were all kind of similar lists because I was just throwing stuff together. So um, I'll have to look into that. I do know that the um, Technomancer allows them to do reanimation in the end of the movement phase, and then they naturally do reanimation in the command phase. And I know the Catacomb Command Barge allows them to do reanimation in both command phases. So your opponents and yours, which is pretty freaking awesome. So what I'm hearing so far from 10th edition is that some armies are flat broken and some armies are flat broke. They're just not good. I've heard all about Eldar being absolutely broken. And uh, I have not seen anything terrible just yet, but I don't play competitively anyway. So I've played against Space Marines, which I did pretty well against. And I've played against uh, Demons of Slanesh with James, which I did pretty well against. Um, he actually won that one, but um, did pretty well against that. And uh, what else did we play against? Uh, Zinch Demons. And my Necrons kind of got owned, but I was doing a two-on-one game and I was only half the points of, You know, whatever. So that wasn't quite a good indicator of that. But um, if you can just deal mortal wounds, Necrons go down pretty quick. But you're absolutely right. The uh, reanimation stuff, if you're playing competitively, oh, yeah, you can really cheese the reanimation. And uh, I feel like they're probably going to get some FAQ there. But yeah, me throwing lists together just alone is pretty darn good. You also forgot about the uh, plus one to hit if there's a character attached. So your Necrons are hitting on threes now instead of fours. Your um, Lich Guard are hitting on twos, I think, in melee. So there's some there's definitely some nastiness to that. I'm just sitting over here happy that all of our issues for 10th edition should be ironed out in the next uh, six months before Shorehammer happens. So I'm pretty excited about that. I do not envy some tournaments that are having tournaments like in July or August or something like that, because that's going to be a real pain in the butt. I've already heard people talking about banning Eldar. I've already heard about people banning... Who was it that got banned? I forgot. There was a whole army that got banned. Was it Eldar? I don't recall. But anyway, yeah, this whole whole army is just being banned because they're just so broken. I'm interested to play some different armies, but so far I've only played my Necrons because my rules were printed out, and I didn't feel like printing out any other rules, so just playing Necrons. But some of the changes are gonna make me actually buy some models for Necrons because, like the Plasmancer is quite good. You're getting uh, lethal hits on fives instead of sixes with your Gauss weapons. That is chef's kiss. It's very nice. And if I recall, the Reanimator is quite good, which I don't even own a Reanimator, so we should uh, we should look into those as well. Anyway, thank you for writing in, Leroy. I expect you to keep me abreast of all the new changes in 10th edition and all the things that are flat busted. I do know that the um, Fate Dice and Eldar with the uh, the weapon platforms that don't need line of sight and you can just change things to sixes and then they've got um, devastating wounds and you can change those to sixes and they're flat four damage. So you just like, you just... Crazy kill stuff with no remorse. You're just like, oh, that was your fate. Eat it. Anyway, thank you for writing in. You can reach me at pimcron at gmail.com or Facebook.com slash PimpCron or on Instagram at PimpCron with just one P. I'll see you on the next side of this music. Want that or want that not? Well, for want that or want that not today, we're discussing the... Indexes for 10th edition 40k. I was a little surprised at the prices. Uh I saw some of these prices at $15 for all the cards you need for your army. And I was like, wow, $15? That's actually not a bad price, really. Um but then I saw some of them were $18, and I'm like, oh well, okay, $18. And then I saw some of them, and probably most of them, are $25. And uh, kind of on the fence about this i mean the the cards certainly serve a purpose, right? They've got all your units and all your information you need, et cetera, et cetera okay but like let's let's take the Space Marines codex, okay, This is probably the best value you're gonna get. Let's go ahead and look at how many cards you get, if it'll even tell me in the Space Marine index. It's a hundred and twenty six cards for twenty five bucks. I mean, really, a hundred and twenty six cards for twenty five bucks is not that bad. The only thing that kind of bothers me, and I'm sure to bother everybody, is that you know this is not the end all be all for the Codex and the Army. You know it's not. So you're going to buy a twenty five dollar card now, and then I mean twenty five dollars. Let's play. Let's see you play Black Templars. It's twenty five dollars for the Space Marines, and then it's another eighteen dollars for the Space Wolves, Black Templar, whatever indexes that you want to buy. That's getting a little pricey. Now, admittedly, Space Marines have a ton of different units, and you all know that as well as I do. 126 cards for Space Marines. Let's go ahead and look at Orcs. Let's see how many cards are in this one for the same price. $25. They have 60 cards. So the Orcs, you're actually getting half as many cards for the same price. It's kind of funny. So that actually makes the Space Marine uh, cards twice as worth it as the Orc cards. Honestly, I can't hate on these. They look nice. It's handy to have cards. You can just pull out the units that you have for them, yada, yada. I am not going to go out. Having said that, I'm not going to go out and buy... I don't even know how many armies I have, like eight 40K armies. I'm not going to go spend $25 a piece on them. I'm just not. So personally, knowing that codexes are coming out and all that, I'm just going to print this off the PDF. That's what me and James have been doing. They're just printing off the PDF because both of us have every single army between the two of us. And a lot of those are duplicates. We both have orcs. We both have Necrons. We both have Dark Eldar. We both have uh, uh Tyranids. There's a lot of those that we have duplicate. And there's no way that we're going to pay for all these. Now, if you're a person that plays one or two or even three armies, well, heck, I'd go out and buy the cards. It's way better than printing these stuff off. But... I just don't see the point of doing that for me. Overall, I would say this is a want that if you have a handful of armies or just one army. Definitely worth it. I think they will be handy. And they're not so unreasonably priced. I don't think they're terrible. Now, of course, we don't know how much it costs for them to make it or whatever. But honestly, I don't think they're totally bending you over with this one. So I would say ultimately it's a want that from the Pimp Although personally, I'm not going to use them. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimcron. Hey everybody, it's Real Talk with the Pimcron, and today we're going to be discussing the history of Games Workshop. And this is 100% true. I fact-checked it all. I checked Twitter. I checked Reddit. I checked my email. Anywhere I could possibly find information about Games Workshop. And I just wanted to do like a comprehensive... 100% accurate, 100% hard truth evidence of how Games Workshop was developed and how it came to be into the company that we all will love and respect now. So let's get on with it. In 1975, a British man by the name of James Workshop, now I know what you're going to think, oh, Games Workshop, James Workshop, actually it was named after him because he spelled James with a G instead of a J. And, of course, he had a last name Workshop, which is like Smith or Mason or any of those names. Apparently, his family came from a a line of Workshop people, and that's just his last name. It's a very common last name in Britain. James Workshop and a couple of his friends, uh, John Peake and Ian Livingstone and uh, Steve Jackson, just to name a couple of them, they decided to create a company where they would make games. Now. The other three didn't have the funds to back this up, so it fell to James Workshop to get this company working. So they naturally named it after him, James Workshop. Now, it's actually a translation issue that Americans call it Games Workshop because in Britain they actually pronounce it James Workshop after the creator, James Workshop. It makes a lot of sense now because what exactly is a Games Workshop? That doesn't even... Games aren't made in a workshop. Games are made in warehouses and factories and things like that. There's no such thing as a workshop. It's not like there's a wooden mallet hammering out game rules or something like that. That doesn't. It always didn't sit right with me. And once I started researching this, I was like, "Oh, James' workshop makes so much more sense." So anyway, back to the original story. Him and his buddies started the company in 1975 making Nintendo controllers for the NES, the home entertainment system. Unfortunately, the NES would not come out for like another decade and hadn't been invented yet, so they switched to wooden board games. They made and distributed a lot of the classic board games that we know, such as Counter-Strike, Age of Empires, and Fortnite, just to name a few of them. A few years later, they actually became the distributor, the UK distributor, for Dungeons & Dragons, which, of course, they bought that rights to that for $4.12, which equates, in today's money, to about $12 billion. It was actually this purchase that put Jeffrey Gygax, the creator of Dungeons & Dragons, on the map. He actually... It was a serious flop in the U.S. Most of you probably don't even know what that is, but suffice it to say, if you look it up, um, Dungeons & Dragons is like a like a team-building exercise where people like come up with a scenario and it's like oh you know brenda's taking an extra 10 minutes on her lunch break but you're the manager what do you do and then sometimes they involve dice and things it's really just never caught on it's it's just not a big deal so we'll just move on from that but they did buy the rights to that and for quite some time they were the only distributor in the uk for dungeons and dragons related miniatures once they had some success with their wooden board games and their distribution of D and D miniatures, um, they actually started a magazine. It was called Owl and Weasel, which are the British terms for male and female genitalia, respectively. And it was actually an adult magazine. It had a lot of weird adult cartoons and strange articles and things like that. The photography in 1975 wasn't great, so it was just hand drawn pictures of nude women and scandalous acts, but That was really not in their wheelhouse, and it actually flopped. So Owl and Weasel became White Dwarf, which is actually another euphemism in Britain for male genitalia. But that one actually catch on, and it was actually a gaming-related magazine. Uh, They did have some miniatures with nipples, but that's a completely side point of this. Everything was rolling pretty smoothly until they took a company trip to Tibet, where they got high on ayahuasca and they had the vision that would be Warhammer Fantasy Battles. The actual vision included whacking a mole with a hammer repeatedly, and every time you would whack a mole, it would pop up in another hole, similar to that Carnival game. Well, it was kind of a representation of how war is eternal, and in the future there's probably only war. Those type of things were ringing in their heads when they came out of their drug-induced coma. Some of the original concepts for Warhammer Fantasy Battle... Once again, we're not quite in their wheelhouse. So the first ideas they actually had was a puppet combat system where people would make their own puppets out of socks and you could make little like cardboard swords and shields for them. You'd have to stand behind a stage and then you would play out the combat. And it was basically a lot of it involved pinching. So if you could pinch harder than your opponent and pinch their hand, you'd often win. But that one actually flopped really hard. Then there was a version of Warhammer that didn't have any dice at all every single combat action was rock paper scissors so you had um you had to defend against their attack similar to a save roll they had to attack you and then whoever won that combat would deal x amount of damage that of course didn't work out very well and eventually they came out with essentially the the uh game mechanics for the game pogs if you remember them they came had a resurgence in the 90s well, at this point, uh, James Workshop was nearly out of business. Okay, they, they were spending so long trying to develop Warhammer Fantasy Battles, trying to get into what they really should be doing with it, what the design features are and all that, that they were able to develop pogs, which you would have your little armies printed on the cardboard tokens and then if you slammed your slammer down hard enough then you got to keep whoever was dead, okay? If you fell off the pile you were dead. If you know anything about POGs, you know it's it's really has not changed since they saved the company by selling the rights to POGs to the POG company. Finally, they were back in the green, back in the black where they could actually pay their bills and with that stress off of them, somebody had a great idea. We're a game company. We're a miniatures company. We've got all the facilities for making miniatures. We've been making these Dungeons and Dragons miniatures for all these years. What if we made a miniature war game called Warhammer? Now, that took off really well. And essentially what it is, they took the American Civil War, but they sprinkled on some orcs, some chaos, some wizards, some dragons, and things like that. And um, anyone that played the original Warhammer Fantasy Battle will realize that there were only two factions. There was the North. And then there was the South, and uh, eventually they did expound on that. They added different factions such as Skaven and and Um Kemri, which I think uh well they're called Tomb Kings, but I think is basically from Mexico. Um, it's just and then there was ogres, which are from Canada. It was it was very U.S. centric, despite them being a U.K. manufacturer. This game became a serious hit. I mean, metal miniatures were flying off the shelves. And uh, they knew they had to use this momentum to expand their business. And it was one of those days in the, uh, the workroom there, as told by some of the people that were there at the time at James Workshop. And they said that someone was playing with two archers from Empire. And they were going, pew, 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 pew. And then they would uh, pick up someone that had a sword and go, voom, voom, and make all these Star Wars noises. And they're like, hold up. Were you making Star Wars noises and the person's like, oh yeah, I, I like to imagine that my archers make pew pew sounds when they shoot their, boat, their arrows. And thus, Warhammer 40,000 was born. And the reason why it was set in the year 40,000 is because when they envisioned Warhammer, they had a price in mind for how much a single army would cost a player. Just a ballpark figure. And the number that they came down to is $40,000. Per army. And that is their eventual goal. They're working towards it. I mean, they're getting closer and closer to that goal every single year with the price hikes. But that is why they said, you know what, wouldn't it be ironic if we called this 40000 Because little do these people know that probably by 2050, it's going to cost $40,000 for just one army. And they all had a chuckle and then they decided to name it that. They kept being asked time and time again, what does 40,000 mean? What does 40,000 mean? And they never really wanted to give that real answer. So later on, about 10 years later, they finally gave that answer in a Black Library book. One of the authors came up with the year 40,000. And they're like, oh my God, that makes so much more sense. Okay, we are out of this corner. It's the year 40,000. And that's the first time it was introduced in any of the lore that it was actually the year and not just an arbitrary number. Now, of course, Warhammer is not the only thing that they had on their plate. Around the time when the movies came out, um, they actually purchased the rights to make a Lord of the Rings miniatures game from George R.R. R. Martin. And they would go on to actually support this game up until now. They're still supporting this game with the hobbits from Westeros and, and the Queen of Dragons and all of that stuff. I was just always fascinated by how James Workshop became the massive gaming company that it is today, and all the bumps along the way and and the like the ill-advised original idea they had to manufacture NES controllers 10 years before NES was even out, that was a horrible business mistake. Now it was forward-thinking, but it was a terrible mistake. And even though James Workshop has been a massive success, the same can't be said for the original creator James. It was in 2003 that he got high on spray paint primer and accidentally fell into a vat of molten lead. Paramedics and emergency personnel, of course, rushed to the scene, but unfortunately it was too late. There was more than two thin coats of lead all over him, and their clippers just could not cut the flash off his body before he perished. It's a sad story, and uh, I hate to end it on a bad note like that, but that is basically the, um, the ups and downs of James' workshop. I feel silly for having written articles for eight years and five years of a podcast and this entire time I've been just saying their name. I figured someone like uh, Mother Flippin' Lord Mike from our Patreon people, he you know, he's British. Like, why would he not correct me on this? I don't know if this is just a, a thing that British people like to laugh at us behind our backs or, or whatever. Um, but a lot of people in the U.S. actually call it Games Workshop, and we also pronounce it Astartes, which it's actually Astartes. So I just want to set the record straight. James Workshop is the name of the company, and they make the Adeptus Astartes. Thanks for listening, guys. I have no idea how this segment's going to be received. Uh, you can email me hate mail or whatever you want. Uh, mail me a bag of urine. Make sure it's warm, though. Cold urine disgusts me. And I don't know. Hopefully, it was entertaining. We'll see. You guys give me some feedback. Let me know what you think now that you know the history behind James Workshop. Thank you for listening. Thank you for my beautiful Patreon patrons. Thank you for my beautiful gamemat.eu and my gorgeous panhandle3d.etsy.com. I will see you guys next week.